0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware.
1: You're obsessed with her? And you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo.
2: And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking CD, the DJ Cenobite. We're talking Vietnam flashbacks. And we're talking a formative sexy sex scene. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking really gross pinhead brainworms oh yeah okay okay not where i thought you were gonna go but yes i know
3: no there's a lot of gross images in these hellraiser movies but for some reason like we got not one but
2: two of these fuckers like coming out of his head and it really grosses me out fair enough i do like that you've latched on to the religious iconography considering what happens in this film
3: Wait, I'm sorry, are we talking about the scene itself, or are the worms some kind of religious thing that I'm
2: unaware of? Oh god, I hope not. Okay, just the scene itself. (laughs) Scared the crap out of me, I was like... (laughs) Oh, you don't know about the Catholic worms? I know, I was
3: I didn't learn about that in CCE. Yeah, we're talking Hellraiser 3, hell on earth, everybody, and I don't want to give a content warning for this, but I do feel like whenever people say Hellraiser, I feel like it's kind of the one franchise that a lot of horror fans probably haven't, like, Delved into like it's more of a niche franchise than something like Friday the 13th
2: or Halloween, right? Is that would you agree? I think so. Yeah, I like to say that this is kind of like the second tier of horror franchises.
3: Yeah, for sure. And I think though because More than 50% of the films in the Hellraiser franchise are garbage. Pure garbage. Most people, sorry most people I'm generalizing here But some people (laughs) like to assume that the early ones aren't good either and that is not the case we're discussing what is the third best Hellraiser film. <laughs> uh... Oh, right. I for-
2: okay, I forgot. You're a bloodline apologist. Yeah, so F you. Go back yeah. and listen to that episode from last year.
3: Yes, and if you did listen to the episode last year, um, I will say again, you don't have to have seen the first two movies to get this film or to understand nope. this film, but they are better films than this film.
2: That is also true. Yes, I will agree to that.
3: But before I get too ahead of myself, we do have someone on deck to help us discuss this um, classic of horror cinema. So (laughs) let's bring him on. All right, everyone. He is a writer at Rue Morgue, Daily Dead, and CinePunks. And he's also a co-host of the Corpse Club podcast. Uh, Also for Daily Dead, he has a running column called Let's Scare Brian to Death, in which he brings on a guest to introduce him to a horror movie he's never seen Coincidentally, both Joe and I have been guests on that column showing him uh, various fright flicks. Please welcome Brian Christopher. Good evening, gentlemen. How you doing? Doing pinheady. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, And I think
0: that the worm on the pins and just everything about that scene is kind of indicative of what you're going to get from Hellraiser. I mean, indicative, it happens two-thirds of the way through the movie, but mm-hmm. it also kind of is in line with how just exquisitely dumb this movie is because <laughs> like the the physics or however you want to put it don't work out with how long those pins are they should be coming out the other side of his head
2: yeah mm-hmm. oh right yeah
0: like this is definitely not your thinking man's hellraiser movie and it's i would argue maybe one of the dumbest movies you've ever covered on here which makes me touched <laughs> that you chose me to help talk about it
3: I don't know if I would say it's the one of, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. I do think it's a pretty dumb movie. You know, I think it balances the tone between goofy and kind of gross out pretty well. The irony here, though, is that Clive Barker was worried about the director, Anthony Hickox, and his tone because he had previously done a lot of horror comedies. And his fears kind of came to
2: fruition. <laughs> Okay. So clearly I'm going to be the person who defends this movie. Brian, I thought that was your job. No, no, no. I (laughs) I want to be
0: perfectly clear about something. This is a really dumb movie. I can now say I love this movie.
3: No, I really like it too. I've had to
0: come around the corner on it a little bit. I used to not enjoy it so much, but like it's a terrible Hellraiser movie. It is a fantastic movie. If that Mm. makes any
3: sense. Well, that's the key, right? This is not the movie that Hellraiser fans were wanting in a third entry from this franchise. And I think if you can divorce it from the dread and doom and gloom of those first two movies, because those first two movies are fantastic, legitimately great movies, horror otherwise, but they are so bleak and so upsetting. This one has elements of that, but I still think, yeah, because it's kind of just so dumb. (laughs) I don't even want to say it's a laughable movie. I just find myself laughing at it a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what they've done is they've recognized that people were naturally gravitating to Pinhead as a character, so this is the movie that really puts him front and center and says, okay, we're going to combine the monster classic that is Pinhead with the slasher tropes that we've learned from, say, Nightmare on Elm Street, and we're just going to go over the top with the death sequences.
3: There's a lot of zingers in this movie from every single character, and I think that makes it feel very 90s to me.
0: Like, yeah, Pinhead's got dad jokes in this one. Like it's his—it's <laughs> this transition that I think he's going like Bond villain, and I think that really comes to fruition in Bloodline. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely like a lot of pontificating and a combination of of just kind of going off in these weird monologues, along mm-hmm. with some really goofy and cringe inducing zingers.
3: <laughs> I, I, yes. I'm gonna like jump way ahead to this black mass scene though. The the zinger that actually works for me very well and I think garnered a well-earned laugh for me though is when she's telling the priest about the demons and he's like, no they're <laughs> just demons, like they don't <laughs> yes. exist. The what the fuck was that? <laughs> what the fuck is that? Like that is an A plus line in my book. I fucking love it. No irony involved. And absolutely yeah, it's also great delivery. Wonder Yes.
0: Wonderfully <laughs> delivered by Terry Farrell. <laughs>
3: Well, okay, so I do have a lot of stuff to talk about with why this movie is the way it is, but I kind of wanted to also just, Joe, I mean, it's been a year since we discussed Bloodline, so I know we've kind of gone through our Also a fantastic with, movie. Uh, it's an <laughs> ambitious movie. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's fantastic. But I still do want to see that, that the original cut, which, you know, we'll probably never see. But we've been maybe waiting one day. a
2: full fucking year at this point. <laughs> I know, it's
3: been forever. But, um, Brian, what is your relationship with this franchise? I also know that you and Joe have Discuss this franchise ad nauseum. Yes. Twice. (laughs) Oh, God. So, yes. (laughs) Recently.
0: Three times. We did a, as part of uh, Corpse Blood, we did a full franchise retrospective every single movie we actually structured it like Dante's Inferno so we took care of all the really crappy ones first of which there are many we covered the middle ones uh second is kind of like purgatory so we did uh, this was part of that Uh, we did Bloodline we did Inferno and then we covered the.
3: (laughs) I know people really like Inferno and it's the Scott Derrickson written one it's not good
0: it's not good it's so boring it is boring (laughs) It just really starts that uh, that trend of turning Hellraiser into, like, quasi, like, Tales from the Crypt episodes. And, and it's also mm-hmm. the first one where they were using a different script that they just shoehorn Pinhead into. Right, yep. So, yeah, it's bad. All apologies to Scott Derrickson or Scott Derrickson fans. It's just, it's not a good movie. Nope. The final episode we did was on the the first two. And part of the reason I wanted to do that in the first place is Hellraiser is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, It actually goes back farthest that I can remember. Uh, For whatever reason, my parents thought it would be okay for someone who I can't imagine I was older than four or five. I think it was just kind of one of those they were watching it, I was in the room, they didn't really give a shit. So some of my earliest memories of horror movies are like Pinhead picking up the pieces of Frank's face. (laughs) And so what I love about the original is just how it's evolved for me over time and my understanding of it has evolved, Um, you mm. know, where it used to be a movie about these, you know, really gnarly mutilated demon monsters. Uh And, you know, as as I've gotten older, I've realized that, you know, they're kind of more background characters and the story is really about the cottons. And if you really want to put a fine point on it, it's really about Julia. Yes. And so. A movie that can evolve like that over time while still maintaining those really fantastic visuals is just something I will never get sick of. And so, yeah, this movie is is not the original. It's definitely not the original, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's still got a lot in it that I really enjoy.
3: Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Listeners, if you want to know Joe and I's relationship with the franchise, please go back and listen to our episode on Hellraiser Bloodline from last year. That one honestly probably works better if you have seen the first three, (laughs) (laughs) because we are dealing with three different time periods in that movie. But nevertheless, (laughs) that film does actually complete the Pinhead saga, which makes all the sequels kind of superfluous. But I think
2: And then there's this one, which is like a weird entry because it does activate on a lot of your assumed knowledge of particularly the second one, the one that precedes it. Mm -hmm. But then it feeds directly into four and it has a lot of little callbacks to one as well. So I like this as a sequel that doesn't hit you over the head by being like, I'm a fucking sequel. You need to know all (laughs) of this lore and literature.
3: Well, I agree to an extent. I will say that I remember this be- this movie being a bit more fast-paced. And I do think the first act of this movie, because we don't get pinhead. Like, Doug Briley yeah. does not speak in this movie, really, until the 30-minute mark. Because the first 30 minutes are catching Joey, our Terry Farrell, up to speed on the mythology. And thereby catching us and the audience up to the speed. Right. So th- the first act of this movie does drag a bit for me. But there was a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And I will say, so yeah, we'll go into the development now. And honestly, it's kind of Claire Higgins' fault that the movie is like this. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Julia, no!
3: (laughs) Yeah, listeners, Claire Higgins is the actress that plays Julia. So I have the Scarlet Box set. This is an Arrow set that came out in 2016, 2015, I think. And it is a stacked Blu-ray set. I'm honestly a little bummed that they don't include bloodline because that was the last it theatrical been the one yeah well apparently because fan reaction was so bad but people hate bloodline so much that they were like well why the fuck would we spend any time doing this Ugh. again i get that but i'm also like one through four are one complete story yeah I just think if you're gonna do a set like it's
2: okay if no one likes it just complete the fucking story and like
0: were people really <laughs> doing fucking backflips over three that they had to include it
2: yeah And Brian, honestly, Trey showed me the extras on this third film. Oh, my God. And I am watching my basic as fuck DVD from back in the day (laughs) that doesn't even have subtitles. Like, that's what you can get if you only get Hellraiser 3 as a standalone. And it blows.
3: I'm really happy, though, because, yeah, so this this set, I bought it for like 70 bucks when it came out. And now it is out of print. And it is about 350 bucks on eBay right Mm. now. Just a reminder, listeners, my birthday is coming (laughs) (laughs) up. There are a lot of extra features. There's like, there's one 30 minute documentary just on the Hellraiser. It's not even like a joint documentary for the first three, it's just on Hellraiser 3. Wow. There's an interview with uh, Paula Marshall. There's an interview with Doug Bradley. And there's also a 200 page book that comes with this thing. Granted, it's for it's for all three, so each movie gets about sixty-seven pages of like material devoted to it. But half of that is the press kit.
2: Nice.
3: So it's thirty pages of press kit, thirty-ish pages of like an actual write-up on the film. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. it's really intense. Also, it does come with the unrated version of three, which is three and a half minutes longer than the theatrical cut.
2: Yeah, because I was reading the Hellraiser films and their legacy by Paul Kane, which is a really fantastic book that details, uh, I want to say it's like the first five films, maybe a bit more. But um, mm. he's done extensive work on the franchise and he outlines scenes that I have never seen or heard from. So clearly they're in that extended draft
3: the thing is, so, like, it's one of those situations where the extra footage is actually, like, a much lower quality, and it goes to pan and scan, like, the 4 by 3 ratio once you uh, get them. Okay. <laughs> a lot of it is actually just extensions of scenes. Like, there's actually, like, when she first gets the Vietnam, like, flashback, there's a lot more footage of her walking around and seeing corpses. <laughs> so, I, I'm assuming it was cut for pacing. Right. Honestly, if there's like, a, a full-blown new scene in it, they must have upped the quality on it, because I couldn't tell.
0: Yeah, okay. So Trace, when you when you say there's more of her walking around in Vietnam looking at corpses, now did you mean when she's actually walking around World War One, or did they actually have a point where she not only walked around looking at corpses in World War One, but there was also a separate section where she's walking around looking at corpses from her Vietnam vision?
3: World War One, you're okay. correct. I needed I needed that correction.
0: <laughs> I only say that because I wouldn't put it past this movie to do that.
3: No, you're right, and I will confess, I, I, I'm not a war movie person. But I, it was interesting though when I was watching this, and you get the World War One, and I was like, wait a minute, I thought it was a Vietnam thing because I could you could tell based on the outfits, though, and I guess maybe what the war zone looks like <laughs> that it takes place like w- whether it's World War One or Vietnam. I guess World War One is what the team yeah, the
2: 1910s. It was the
0: trench that gave it away for me. <laughs>
2: There you go. The trenches World War 1, the Vietnam is the first one and you can tell because they're leaning heavily into that Miss Saigon helicopter. Oh okay.
3: god. Also the trees. I feel like um Vietnam War like there's always the the, the trees that give Vietnam away.
2: <laughs> I don't know.
3: Okay. So this movie was actually in development before Hellbound was even released in theaters in 1988. So, New World Pictures, uh, which was the distributor, and Film Futures, which was a production company owned by Clive Barker and Chris Figg, they held meetings about the film. And Barker originally wanted the Hellraiser sequels to focus on Julia. Like yes. They were like, this is what this franchise is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were, like, six different versions of this script. Um, one of them, like, the opening scene had, like, the camera coming up to a woman from behind as she was at a vanity. And she opened the drawer, and inside the drawer was a bunch of different faces, and she would try them on. <sighs> And it was Julia. This is just going to bum me out
0: knowing what this movie could have been now. I I almost don't want to hear this.
3: So (laughs) Higgins declined to reprise her role for a third film. So when they were having these discussions, she was like, "Um, I really don't want to be the face of a horror franchise. I'm out.
2: Yes, and in her defense, she is a classically trained British actress, so she probably didn't realize, like, oh, okay, I guess I'm signing on for multiple pictures of this weird horror franchise. Absolutely,
3: and that's why, that she, so in the later drafts of Hellbound, she was killed off. Mm-hmm. And they face. also realized that, the, that fans were going towards the Cenobites. They wanted Pinhead. Their, their thing that they always said was, oh, if you showed someone a picture of Claire Higgins as Julia, most horror fans would be like, what? Who's that? But if you showed them Pinhead... They knew that was Hellraiser.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So there were going to be a couple different ideas. They were going to have a story where it was set in ancient Egypt. That was Clive Barker's idea where it was about like Pinhead attempting to resurrect himself. There was a building that functioned as the limit configuration. Blah, 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 blah. So during these talks, 20th Century Fox demanded extensive cuts to Barker's latest film, Nightbreed, which is an adaptation of the novella Cabal, which we have not discussed on this podcast yet, but listeners, we have written about it, so you can go find our article on it on Bloody Disgusting.
2: Mm -hmm. We'll get to it one day.
3: One day. I just, I'm not gonna lie, y'all. I like it fine. I just kind of find it a very, like, long, drawn-out viewing experience that I don't want to revisit very often. (laughs) (laughs) We need a couple years in between. I really do.
0: It's serviceable. Yeah, I enjoy it.
3: I feel the same way about Lord of Illusions, which we did cover last year. So that was like we're getting in like a Barker a year, and I'm fine with. It. Actually, we did two Barkers last year, so fuck everyone. <laughs> Wait, did we? What was the other Barker? Uh, Bloodline. I Is mean, I involved guess involved in Bloodline. I know. But, okay, but but it. it it's you
1: know, you
0: know, he would property. slap you right in the face if he was I know. <laughs> here when you said that, right? probably
3: so but it's I mean, okay you could
2: have said candy man too he's closer to candy man too than he is to bloodline
3: <laughs> so following a misleading marketing campaign from fox that promoted nightbreed as a slasher film nightbreed underperformed that's putting it mildly yeah. at the box office and that caused film futures to go out of business at the same time new world was going through bankruptcy as well so hellraiser 3 languished in development hell Former New World executives, including Lawrence Cuppen, established transatlantic pictures, and the rights were transferred to them. Now, the problem is, this was later. So basically, when New World collapsed, the rights went with them. And it took them three and a half years to figure out who owned the rights to this franchise. So mind baffling <laughs> <laughs> Like, who owns the rights to this major franchise? Ah, we don't know. I mean that's the thing like you have to, it's like isn't it like in a contract somewhere like if this company goes bankrupt then the rights divert to x person x company i don't I guess know yes you
2: would think so but presumably they never thought they would go bankrupt so they never wrote it in yeah yeah uh,
3: so okay basically after disagreements at transatlantic barker had no official involvement with this film initially at first, the studio balked at his fee because they wanted a cheap and nasty film, so they paid Clive Barker $20,000 to have no involvement with Hellraiser 3. So <laughs> rude. <laughs> wow. Tony Randall, who's the director of Hellbound, he co-wrote the story for Hell Hellraiser 3 with Peter Atkins. Atkins completed the first draft of the screenplay in 1991, and... Randall says that there was one draft that he was really happy to get rid of because, I guess, because there have been so many drafts at this point, one of them actually made its way onto the Black Market to the point where, when, like, Bradley was doing, Doug Bradley was doing the convention circuit, people would come up and have him sign copies of the Black Market Hellraiser 3 script instead of copies of Hellbound. Oh, Hmm. weird. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Take
2: that scream.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Tony Randall is attached to direct this movie, but the producers removed him after they became worried that his vision for the film was too bleak. They thought it was too depressing, too dark, too gory, blah, blah, blah.
2: Give us a slasher.
3: Yeah, so he, then they were like, yeah, they wanted to cheapen it. They wanted to bring the franchise out of cult status and attract the mainstream and also attract a younger audience, which is why the setting for this movie is primarily at a nightclub. (laughs) Because it's hip.
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's also why it's said in america because they're like fuck the brits americans want to see americans
3: (laughs) that's always what they do in those those 90s um like horror movie posters when they have like the uh the fox tv review blurbs and it's like fun hip and scary
0: (laughs) and apparently in the most abandoned section of new york city i've ever seen in my life
3: yeah, aka North Carolina. <laughs> I, I have I have so many thoughts about that, but yeah. So <laughs> they bring on Anthony Hickox to replace Randall after a mutual friend, um, whom Hickox had cast in his his last film, Waxwork Two: Lost in Time, suggested him. Now Hickox actually grew up in a film family. His dad was director Douglas Hickox, who was directed a bunch of shit, but he also directed the Vincent Price film Theater of Blood. His mom is Anne V. Coates, who's a noted Hollywood editor. She actually edited the films Lawrence of Arabia, The Elephant Man, and Fifty Shades of Grey. One of these things is (laughs) not like the other. Um, He also had a love of Hammer Horror, which is actually his defense at the Black mass scene, which caused a lot of controversy. So Transatlantic then finally invited Barker back on board, but he declined because he didn't like Hickox's prior work and believed him a poor fit for the series because he was known for horror comedy. Hickox flew to Barker and met with him and was like, dude, look, I'm gonna take it seriously, we're gonna be good. So Barker was like, okay, fine, I approve of you. But then after that, Barker didn't hear from anyone involved with the film for nine weeks. So... They go through pre-production, they go through filming, Barker is not involved. And he still got his $20,000 paycheck, so he's good. <laughs> they also had new Cenobites involved because they didn't want to bring over a lot, and also new crew. So while the first two films you can see like an aesthetic that kind of matches, not the case with this one because they didn't want to bring the crew for, over from Britain. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, this is the first film shot in the United States. Transatlantic gave Hickok six weeks to shoot the film. This shoots uh, in the fall, like September through November of 91. And, as Joe said, North Carolina, which stood in for New York City.
0: <laughs> you know, As it does. Seamlessly.
3: Hickok's had previously established a very fast shooting schedule, which used long hours. So they had to adjust to his unorthodox style and studio's demands. Apparently, Bradley worked for 17 hours straight one day. They also shot with in-camera editing, so like instead of like shooting out of order based on like people's availability and stuff, they shot the entire movie in sequence, which is kind of a pain in the ass. Hmm. They also used stages for a lot of the sets, and they were all next to each other. So when they were trying to film scenes at the same time, they couldn't because the sound was going over between the <laughs> stages. <laughs> it's
2: the problem when you've got Motorhead. I know,
3: I know. So, they're looking for a U.S. distributor. Miramax becomes interested in distributing the film, but what happens next is contentious. I know. So, this is Bob and Harvey Weinstein getting involved with the Hellraiser franchise in Other the third fucking,
2: again, Trace. Back-to-back weeks. I was going to make a joke that, like, every year we should document, like, who have we covered the most on the podcast, and guess who it is? It's the fucking Weinsteins. It's Dude. terrible.
3: But, you know, honestly, I feel like they, what they did on this film made it turn out better than it would have. So... What happens next is a little bit contentious because no one can really agree on who suggested what according to hickox the director bob weinstein loved the rough cut he saw which was about a two hour film and offered hickox money for additional effects work and to redo the ending this resulted in um, the early use of cgi the first in a horror film apparently to add several Mm -hmm. gory scenes barker who now is coming back into the film disputes this account and says that Kuppen showed him a work print and he was unimpressed Barker declined an executive producer credit after Cuppin offered, suddenly scared that the film was going to be bad. Barker then criticized the film's ending and the low-budget effects work. So then Barker says that Weinstein actually came to him personally, asked for his honest evaluation of the film, and Barker reiterated the criticisms, and at Weinstein's urging, came back in to fix the film. They offered $500,000 for an extra week of shooting, which took place in February of 92, and that's about three months before the film's premiere. So depending
0: on who you believe, it was either so good they were given more money for reshoots, or it was so bad they were given more money for reshoots.
3: <laughs> and who can say? <laughs> well, and also, good for Barker, because he not only he got two paychecks, one to go away and one to come
2: back. <laughs> I mean, I love this. Queer creators get that money.
3: I mean, I do like that. Yeah, he was very possessive of his property, rightfully so. And it, that's great. Like, he stood his ground.
2: Well, I think part of it, too, is that I think he realized by this point that he had made a mistake giving up the rights to Hellraiser, which is something that, you know, we got to talk about happily. Last year, he actually got the rights mm-hmm. back, which is why he's involved with some of the upcoming Hellraiser productions. But, like, basically, he wasn't going to get money from these films, so mm-hmm. he had to make ways to get money. I can't believe there's productions, plural, happening with help. <laughs> yes. <I'm> so
3: excited! <laughs> I'm getting a movie and a TV show, folks. Yes! All right, so to close this out, in Barker's account, he was the one responsible for Farrell's bondage scene. Additional scenes of extended gore in the nightclub massacre, so you'll see a lot of insert shots there of random people getting killed. That apparently is Barker's fault.
2: <laughs> responsibility <laughs> i don't know it's good it's
3: good that they're there <laughs> there we go <laughs> the cgi when lee's character is skinned and many insert death scenes okay oh, yeah, yeah, there we go regardless of the extent of barker's involvement in post-production it was now enough for him to accept an executive producer credit and the film was given a clive barker presents banner
1: mm. right
3: so yeah this film after premiering like for i guess la in may of 92 does open on september 11 1992 we are looking at a runtime of 97, sorry, 93 minutes for theatrical, 97 for unrated, and a budget of... This is the weird thing. So Wikipedia is telling me $12 million. Mm-hmm. In the Blu-ray set on the features, they say specifically $4 million. Oh, it's not $4 million. Well, but he, I'm wondering if the Wikipedia amount is adjusted for inflation. Because $4 million in would have probably pulled this off. And also, they said it, it, it made a profit, and this movie made a domestic gross of $12 million. Hmm. So. I mean, I guess I they know.
0: probably weren't spending a whole lot on the cast. There wasn't anybody, I think, that would have been pulling that big a salary at that point anyway.
2: Yeah. yeah. I guess just Doug Bradley, and then they moved the production to North Carolina, where I'm sure they probably shot it as cheaply as possible.
3: Probably so. I mean, I I will say, I actually think this film looks good. I think Hickox directs it fairly well. Like, plot aside, whatever the fuck you want to say, just as a piece of cinema, I think it's, again, my my go-to phrase, competently made. (laughs)
2: I think it's more than competently made. People yeah. can hear me gush about this on the Corpse Club episode, but this is a really stylistic film when you think about the deep focus and the way that he's using the camera. Like he didn't have to insert all of these flourishes and mm-hmm. make it as visually compelling as he does. He could have just filmed this like a stock and slash. Yeah,
0: I gotta give uh I guess this would be credit to cinematographer Jerry Lively. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really interesting like whip pans and just like really deep, I don't know exactly how you describe it, but like the close-ups in this movie that have kind of like that fisheye lens.
3: Yeah. Oh, and a lot of split diopter yes. as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, there's definitely some effort in how they shot this movie.
3: He's definitely a man that keeps the same crew. I mean, he really hasn't done much since this movie. I think the only thing he did after this that was of note was Warlock the Armageddon. But he does keep Jerry Lively and his editor, Christopher Sibeli, like around for all of his films. So it's like, again, it's kind of a Mike Flanagan situation where it's just the same crew over and over and over.
2: Yeah. That's good. I mean, I guess if you have a good working relationship, you might as well.
3: Yeah. So uh, yeah, this opens at the number three slot with $3.2 million, goes on to gross $12 million. It will not be the last Hellraiser film to go to theaters, that will be Bloodline. It does get pretty bad reviews. Rotten Tomatoes, (laughs) we're looking at a 39% with an average score of 4.11 out of 10. Letterboxd is a bit kinder, and I actually see that a lot of people in our horror circle do seem to like this movie, um, but we're looking at an average score of 5.4 out of 10.
2: I think people recognize this film for what it is. It's dumb fun. It's not going to make you think too hard, but it's an enjoyable ninety-ish minutes.
0: And oh, it's yes. also just an ill-advised endeavor from go. Like the idea of trying to make something like Hellraiser into a slasher movie. It just it's just not going to work the way you want it to.
3: Will also make it mainstream.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I think, like, if I remember correctly, when we were talking about it on Corpse Club, Joe, like, even the first one only has a Rotten Tomato score of, like, 72%, which is, you know, it's good, but it's not like...
2: It should be in the 90s. Yes, yeah.
0: (laughs) But it also shows that there is a specific audience for this. So the people who love it are absolutely going to love it, but not everybody's going to love this. So to try and transition to that into some kind of a mainstream franchise is just not going to work.
2: Yeah, there apparently was an early draft of this or somebody maybe at Miramax or one of the production houses were like, I envision Pinhead walking down the street and just like getting the chains into a bunch of like thugs and teenagers. And I'm just like, what (laughs) Hellraiser are you talking about, sir?
0: Oh, man. (laughs) And you see the way it plays out on TV. It just like when you bring these characters out into the real world. It just looks kind of ridiculous. Like, it's interesting, and I had a lot of fun with it, but it's also like, ah, uh, it looks like a bad Photoshop watching Cenobites walk down Main Street, North whatever town in North Carolina
3: they were in. I love the set. <laughs> this movie actually does kind of excite me because it's almost like, I'm going to say good fan fiction, where it's like a what-if Cenobites in the city. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. A,
0: a Cenobite night on the, night on the town.
3: Yes, I think it's it's when the cops pull up and the, they all blow up. I got like really excited in my couch, like rewatching this movie. I was Like, oh, this is like really fun.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's so silly! Like that lady police officer being like, "Shit,
1: gasoline!"
2: <laughs>
0: and then just standing <laughs> just there so blankly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Say the line and then stand there. Wait for pyrotechnics.
3: <laughs> hold, hold, hold. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great so yeah i don't think it's as much of a clusterfuck as bloodline is because again i think our explanation of the production of bloodline was like twice as long as this mm-hmm. but it's a movie that feels like one complete vision at least which is more
2: than i can say for bloodline uh yeah you can feel the meddling with bloodline <laughs> yeah sadly but that's also an editing problem too oh yeah 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 yeah. but yeah let's go let's begin so we open on jp Monroe, who is played by kevin Bernhardt. Like a shiny brick of muscle, <gasps> oh. with
0: with silver tipped red cowboy boots,
3: <laughs> and the underwear. Like the
2: underwear is like a very unique choice. Oh, it's international clothiers. Them some silk boxer shorts, baby. I also
0: just appreciate the way like his brand of obnoxious isn't even trying to hide itself. Like he's not really trying to be charming. He's just like, yeah, I'm rich. Uh, I I get what I want. I can just be a prick all the time and people accept it because I'm wealthy and good looking.
2: Yeah. It is interesting to see how many people compare him to Frank from the first two films. And I'm like, oh, I see it. He's charming. He's good looking. He gets what he wants. But like this is the American version of that. Like <laughs> he is a sleazy character. I also think it's great that Kevin Bernhardt got his start working on multiple soaps because I'm like, oh, I can see it. The face. Yes. Yeah, like a hundred <laughs>
0: plus episode run on General Hospital, I think it was
2: mm
3: mm-hmm. yeah. General Hospital. He was also in Dynasty, the original, the OG Dynasty, for like a handful of episodes.
0: By the way, I don't know if you all have seen his, uh, like his current IMDb photo, but has aged quite well.
3: I did, because I, I find him very attractive in this movie, so I yes. really wanted to see what he looked like now. Yeah. He's still got it, folks. Mm-hmm. He's still mm-hmm. got it. He's a silver fox, I think, now.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I did want to point out, though, so this movie actually just opened on the title card, and we get the score. Um, it is a different composer than who we've had before. It's um, His name is Randy Miller. He worked on Darkman 2 and two and 3. Make of that what you will. But the title track, and I don't know if, Joe, you got a chance to go back and listen to Jason X, but it reminds me of the Uber Jason theme from Jason X. And so I guess, in retrospect, Jason X's Uber Jason theme reminds me
2: of the Hellraiser 3 theme. There we go. Credit where credit is due, sir. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's the same basic theme. It's just done on, like, a crappy 90s synthesizer, right?
2: How dare you, sir? He went to Russia. <laughs>
3: well, I was going to say, actually, because like, we, we could we could quibble that Jason X 2002, but they filmed it in 99.
0: Oh, no, I was talking about Hellraiser 3.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, I think they're both the same thing.
2: I think, I, I'm t- I think
3: it's the same thing.
2: <laughs> Harry Manfredini ripped off Hellraiser 3. Yes, but I think Brian is referring that it's the same theme from the first two films. Yes. Oh, is it really?
3: Yeah, well, it, I mean it's, it's the same basic a fair yeah. Amount. Yeah. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah. I haven't seen well, I haven't seen the first two since
2: I marathoned this franchise 2 years ago. Uh, hmm. Yeah, and you did it in the wrong order because you started with the good ones. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I will say that y'all probably did do it the right way by by doing the back half first. Well, oh, I only did it that so way
0: cuz I knew damn well if I tried to do it in order, I just wouldn't finish. I would probably get to, like, I don't know, maybe six, and go, fuck this.
3: So, yeah, my, my friends and I like to do marathons, be it either franchises or, like, via themes, and I can confidently say that Hellraiser was the worst
2: one, in the sense that, like, none of us wanted to keep going after a certain point. <laughs> yeah, you start to feel like you're the one who's being punished as you get into those later entries. I mean,
3: the problem is, there, and, like, y'all, y'all liked, y'all liked Hellworld on you y'alls. Like, I mean, again, liked, relatively speaking, compared to the other Others. I hate Hellworld so much, but <laughs> the problem with so many of them is that they're boring. Yeah. That's the mm-hmm. issue. And at least with the like this one and bloodline, like they're not boring. I can no. say that for them.
2: They're not quite Hellraiser films, but they're also not just film noir dressed up with pinhead <sighs> in a corner. Yes. Yeah. And that's the important thing. Like we actually you're right that we don't get a ton of Doug Bradley in this opening first act, but like at least we're gonna fucking get him and he's still going to act like a Hellraiser character.
3: I will say, too, so there is a documentary that covers, like, the franchise in general on this Scarlet Box set, and they have Cl- um, D- Doug Bradley on here. They don't have Clive Barker. But the two most prominent names that feature in this documentary to go, like, talk to them about, like, the themes of Hellraiser and what the franchise means are Scott Derrickson and Carrie Wurrer.
2: <laughs> uh, well, love me some Carrie Wurrer. To be honest, it would be the only reason that I would ever cover that film in the future. <laughs>
0: and, and I will say that for me... Debtor, the the one she's in, it's one mm-hmm. of the the VOD uh, installments. It's not the most egregious, but it also suffered from like I was just it was in the middle of just the mm-hmm. turd sandwich that was the rest of those movies. So at that point, I just kind of lumped it in one big blur of crap. But I, I don't think Debtor is nearly as egregious as like Hellseeker was in terms of the way it bombed. Oh right. no, yeah.
3: actually, you're right. Sorry, yeah, Hellworld is my second list here. At Hellseeker was my worst Thank like you, that, Trace. No, Inferno.
2: Yes. Inferno is the worst. Then oh. Hellseeker.
3: <laughs> I mean, again, it's not great, and I have it at the bottom, but, like, Hellseeker, because it not only fucks up the franchise, but it fucks up Kirstie Cotton. Yes. Oh, yeah, that is true. And it's boring.
0: <laughs> and it fucks up Pinhead. Like, it's a movie that presents the idea that Pinhead is after Kirstie Cotton for a couple of decades, and then she just kind of tosses five randos at him, and he's like, yeah, that's cool. That works for me. Yep.
3: mm and it makes her unlikable. I mean I get that her husband was a douchebag,
2: but no. <laughs> and also I'm gonna put a pin in this conversation because yes. we have lost everybody who doesn't know anything about those old things. So folks, <laughs> yes, come back to I'm us. Sorry. Come back. So
3: to us. He, he buys a pillar. He buys a pillar
2: for like Yes. He goes to this pyramid gallery in the middle of the fucking night. You can tell he's a connoisseur of art because he's smoking indoors. (laughs) So everyone is smoking indoors in this movie. Bear in mind, these were different times you were allowed to smoke indoors. But all I could think of was, like, you're there to buy art, and you're just muddying it with your disgusting cigarettes. Dude.
0: Yes, you're going to upset the homeless man that runs the store.
2: Oh, Oh, yes. Yep. This... Franchise has an uncomfortable history with the way that it uses transient people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, unhoused people regularly just wander into pet stores and eat crickets out of the <laughs> out of the tank. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's very proper in that way. Like, don't trust people who don't have money. They will try to sell you something that will murder you later
0: there were a a series of different comic books that came out uh, in the Hellraiser universe. And there was one that started kind of really world building on Hellraiser and the whole mythology. And they actually put forth like the, the the homeless people. It's like this network of of demons that Mm. they're the ones who like make sure the box gets into the right hands. And they're also like, the homeless disguise, or however you want to call it, is uh, covering up that they're actually that flying skeleton demon that kind of comes out right. of nowhere at the end of, well, yeah, when the homeless guy kind of melts and the, the mm-hmm. winged demon comes out of it. Like, there's a whole, like, fleet of those in the the, the comic book version. They took it to some interesting places in terms of, like, taking a lot of, like, throwaway ideas and making it something that was more connected and cohesive.
2: Right, which is I think why I like these first four films because they do feel so different from the other kinds of horror films that we were getting not just at the time but in terms of like franchise potential they never seem quite content to just rest on their laurels even if what they were giving us was a bit of a hot mess
3: well but i also like that they all feel so distinct from each other right like i mean one and two you could technically watch sometimes i consider one and two like part one part two like it's mm-hmm. just the first half of a movie and the second half of a movie But the second one is so much more bonkers than that first movie, which is why I like it more. Yeah. But, like, they all feel so different. And they're doing their own thing with the material to varying degrees of success. Mm -hmm. But I can still respect it for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll say yes, we respect them. They're not always successful in that regard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so he gets this pillar of souls, and on it we can see there is an image of the puzzle box as well as Pinhead, who is of course played by Doug Bradley. And we saw this pillar at the end of part two, how it got from the UK to here in, quote-unquote, New York City. (laughs) 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 So let's meet our heroine, who is an ambitious reporter by the name of Joey, played by Terry Farrell. And she is hanging out at the hospital where things are very quiet, but at least she has her father figure, cameraman Doc, Ken Carpenter, and I'm going to refer to him as Dexter's dad for the remainder of the episode. Oh, that's no, not who he is. That's
0: though. 100% Jerry Remar, or is it Jerry? No, what's his James name? James Remar. Remar. Mm-hmm. If I found out they were related, I would
3: 100% believe that because <laughs> that is. Yes. A... Thank you, the Brian, first for thing understanding think... my joke as opposed to no. Trace, who tried to explain it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> cut that out. Cut, my, cut me out. I didn't. I didn't pick up that at all. I, I did not pick up on that at all. <laughs> but i will
2: say i love this introduction for joey oh it's great it tells you everything that you need to know about her in like two minutes
0: i also love how like again this is new york city and i get that they're making a point that this is like a quiet night at the hospital this is the must be like the smallest hospital in new york city it is just like what a hallway and like one and one room, yeah. an operating
2: room. This is like Halloween Two levels yes. of ridiculous yes. deserted hospital. <laughs>
3: well, I, I bet you this was on that soundstage they were they were filming on. <laughs> oh sure,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. What
3: sucks is because I think this is a great intro for her. I do love like the way that like the climax with Joey. Although I do think that in the middle of the film, a lot of her scenes are stolen by Paula Marshall because I'm actually more interested in Terry for most of this movie's runtime. Yeah. But, yeah, this, like, she's doing this fucking, like, report in this deserted hospital. And she's like, oh, there's no bodies here. It's a mystery to me. A mystery how those assholes in Assignment knew it. This is Joey Summerskill for Channel 8 Emergency Room. Very bored. No story. No life.
2: Really, really pissed off. <laughs> I also love it because she's delivering this as she's being filmed by Doc. Yeah. But also, there's a nurse who works at this hospital, played by Dawn of the Dead, Sharon Hill. And she's just like, okay, I guess I'll just lay out these Dead Ringer-style operating yep. instruments. Yeah, and
0: and caress them lovingly, especially when I put down the, the back saw.
2: Well, that feels like Hellraiser, right? It Definitely feels like, oh, okay, these weird torture devices will become important in a couple of moments.
0: It feels like someone who doesn't understand the tone of Hellraiser trying to duplicate the tone of Hellraiser.
2: Yep. Yeah.
0: And failing in spectacular fashion in a way that is very entertaining.
2: (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So speaking of the comm is interrupted, we've got a screaming man who gets rushed in on this gurney. He's got bloody chains that are attached. Of course, Joey gets her ankle caught on one of them. And this is also our introduction to Terry, who, as you said, Trace is played by Paula Marshall. She is accompanying this man. She tries to run away and Joey's like, hey, what's the story here? And she gets the name. The what's boy, the, scoop? the room. What's the <laughs> scoop? Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, Joe, you asked me offline if I knew who Paula Marshall was because you know her from Rob Thomas's short-lived TV show Cupid. Yes. Because in her interview, like, because it was what, from a couple years ago, I was like, she looks so familiar. I honestly think she just reminds me of um, Shawnee Smith. Oh huh Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
2: can totally see it. Yeah, I think I'm
3: just seeing Shawnee
2: Smith, even though it's Paw- Paw- Pawnee, 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 Pawnee partial, uh, <laughs>
3: Paula Marshall.
2: <laughs> well, I don't think you're wrong there, because particularly in this film, she is styled to look like old school Shawnee Smith, right? Like, she's got a mm-hmm. little bit of punk, a little bit of edge, but she's still sexy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, she also had a stint on Veronica
3: Mars, did she not? Yes, but that will also be because she was in Cupid, because it's in mm-hmm. Creator.
2: Gotcha. Yep. <laughs> i guess rob marshall also likes to keep his friends close rob thomas because rob Marshall's the director of chicago god damn it
0: <laughs> and paula marshall is the person who worked for rob thomas in oh my years. god
3: if rob thomas married paula marshall but then they were like you know progressive and he took her last name then he would be rob marshall
2: <laughs> there we go and maybe he could get the real rob marshall to then direct like a song and dance number there you go we figured it out i think
0: we've made life make sense <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: all right so terry is like boy the room bye and then she leaves and then joey's like cool what's happening in here and this dude's head explodes it's great it's a really really cool scene
0: <laughs> i also i love the idea that they're trying to make us believe that she can't get any traction on this as a news story because she didn't get any actual video footage of it happening there is a room mm-hmm. of about i don't know six to eight medical professionals in there who have all witnessed this happen i'm sure there are probably security cameras somewhere but they just (laughs) throw it away with (laughs) i love the line of a producer in the next scene where he's just like this is television if there ain't no picture it didn't happen well yeah (laughs) seeing as tv works on video i really don't know how you have that job sir
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, this is also the dude who's basically telling her that she needs to show an inch more flesh if she wants to become an anchor woman. So I'm not sure we should take him at his word for anything.
0: I love how he's doing like a John Madden breakdown of how she crosses and uncrosses her legs during an interview.
2: Yeah, it's like what news program are we watching here, sir? Is this Fox? I'm
3: also really perplexed because like she tells them like what she saw, and they're like, "There's no story there." I'm like,
1: "What? Are you exploding heads happen me? in New York City all the time, yeah. Joey."
3: <laughs> like show some tata's, then we're good. But no, no, just an exploding head. No, 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 no. Scrap that shit.
2: Do you
0: have a picture of it? No, didn't happen.
2: It's like how we don't have enough skin on the camera. It didn't happen, so you don't get it.
3: I mean, maybe the movie's trying to be a condemnation on the patriarchy and male sexism in the workplace.
2: I mean, I was actually going to advocate that there is an uncomfortable feminist reading about how women are commodified in this. Because if you look at all the women, they basically just get used up by men. Or a pillar. Or a pillar. I mean, a man in a pillar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he eats her literally it sure as fuck does yeah (laughs) okay let's move on so we can get closer to that scene (laughs) so uh joey obviously goes to the boiler room because she's like i'm a big city reporter i want the scoop
3: (laughs) this is our first bit of unrated footage Mm. we get a establishing shot of the club which includes a dancer being topless
1: oh
2: Okay, so I need to talk to you both about the size of this club, because this club includes a giant dance floor with a live band and go-go dancers, and then it's attached to a massive restaurant that has a live orchestra playing. What is this bar? (laughs) It also has a penthouse.
0: Which is also (laughs) separate enough that if you're in any one of those other places, you don't hear the
3: nightclub. And the Mm -hmm. restaurant's like a really nice restaurant, Mm too.
2: (laughs) It's like five-star dining, only populated by hoods. (laughs) I love it. It makes no sense at all. And also, I'm imagining these two places are actually side-by-side, as you talked about, Trace. So I'm just like, oh, I can imagine them trying to shoot in that other location and being like, can someone please tell the band to keep it down?
3: Well, and not to be, like, a douchebag, but, like, Terry does does not look like she belongs in this restaurant. (laughs) Well, I think they're making
0: a point. I don't think that necessarily you just being a douchebag. I think that's the movie. Like, they're trying to make a point of making it seem like she doesn't belong in there. Well, because she's homeless.
2: Yeah. The film is playing with broad strokes when it comes to Terry. Like, we're sort of meant to assume that she's maybe been abused, that she is homeless, mm. that she's maybe dabbling in drug use of some kind. You know, I actually don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean... Because Joey sees a stash at some point, doesn't she?
3: Does she? I thought she was just a crazy smoker. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember seeing drugs.
2: Okay. In that case, it could just be me. I mean,
3: but but, again, no, I mean, like, like, she is styled to look like someone who you think would be doing drugs.
2: Yeah, very much. Like she's a bit of a bad girl. Like one of the things that struck me the first time I watched this was how comfortable Joey is letting Terry into her apartment because um, the I, film yes. makes you want to be like, "Oh, don't trust her. She's going to steal from you." Can
0: I tell you the anxiety attack I had when the scene where she's making breakfast and I'm just Oh like, my god. Oh god, she's going to burn down the apartment. Like the whole building's yes. going to burn down. Get her out of there. Get her out of there. I can't. No. No, no, no. <laughs>
2: And Joey has told you, she does not own this place. It's a mortgage. (laughs) Okay, so we're still at the Boiler Club. She has this interaction where she inquires about Terry and then she leaves her card with JP. I do love the way that she talks to him because she does not give him two fucks.
3: No, I mean, she's a really strong final girl. I think, and this is through no fault of Paula Marshall or Terry Farrell, but like, I think just because they're battling for screen time and also... B plots during the middle of this movie it just takes some power away from Joey's arc
0: and apparently yeah. there was a little bit of like a competitive like a, a healthy like a friendly competitive relationship between Farrell and Marshall on set oh mm-hmm. so you know that might have also wound up impacting the way it kind of came together on screen like not that they were nipping at each other or like mean or anything like that but uh, you do kind of get that sense of like I'm going to outact you in this scene
2: And also the sexual tension. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not Clive Barker without some queer content, is it? Oh, there we go. I'm also going to make the claim that there's some incest drama going on in here, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's get to our very first dream sequence, boys. We've got this saturated Vietnam set where Joey, dressed in this gorgeous white nightgown, she sees a helicopter abandoning her father and other American GIs under fire. Snooze. Ooh. It does not look like vietnam but you know what that's okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't need i mean i guess we do need it for the ending and
3: the, the pinhead trick with the dad but, but like you know. narratively
0: there was no payoff for this like they had to figure out some way It's like they knew the beat that, like, she had to give the box to him. So they, they, Mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know, like, reverse engineered some way of, like, how can he trick her into giving him that box? And that's what they came up with. And it is just not narratively satisfying at all. It is a waste of time. And the thing is,
3: another movie did this exact same trick, but way better. And that would be Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yes.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking, too.
2: -hmm. And that came out well before this. Yeah, Yeah, it was five years before. (laughs) I will say, I think the only other reason that this is in here, like, I don't know that it needed to be weird dream stuff with war sequences. I know that Paul Kane in the Hellraiser book tries to make the argument that this is like an embodiment of the hell on Earth that is the subtitle of this film. Oh, I get it.
3: I get it. (laughs) But see, in that case, though, you make this a war movie. If you want to do that, <gasps> like a World mm. War One pinhead, Cenobites
0: on the battlefield. Ooh.
3: Ooh. Honestly, no. That's what they should have done with the sequels. I'm sorry, we're back on the sequels, but all set up. But it should have been Cenobites in blank, like just Madlib it, and there's your sequel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Cenobites in the snow. No, Cenobites no, on a cruise we'll ship.
0: Make a bunch of police procedurals and have Pinhead in it at the end. Oh,
2: God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's settle on the cheapest one. That's also the least interesting. Go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will also say this sets up her daddy issues. So she's been abandoned by her dad, who was killed in Vietnam. She's looking for a father figure in The Cameraman, and then she finds it in Elliot Spencer, a.k.a. Human Pinhead.
3: So your incest theory is that she was in love with her dad while she was a little girl before he died
2: in Vietnam. (laughs) No, my incest reading is that uh, Elliot Spencer, who is like a surrogate father figure is invading Mm. her dreams and she's in this white virginal nightgown and it's there's a little bit of sexy overtures there
3: okay
0: i I think they say in the movie that uh he died before she was even born her actual dad
3: well i was trying to do the math because if it's 92 vietnam was the what the late 60s early 70s
2: yeah it's not my
3: war so i don't know No, that would have made sense then, yeah, because let's assume she's 22 in this movie, so she's born in 1970.
0: Because that was, like, one of the story beats is that she realizes it's not her dad and that it's Pinhead because he knows her name, and her dad would have never actually known her name. Oh, yes.
3: Right. Mm -hmm. right, We need to pay attention to this Hellraiser 3. (laughs) The sparkling dialogue. (laughs) Why the
0: hell am I paying this much attention to Hellraiser 3 is my question.
3: (laughs) I will say, though, to be fair, Terry Farrell would have been, like, 28 when they were filming this. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean
2: that tracks.
0: Which means if we're going by if we're going by Hollywood ages, if she was twenty-eight, then she probably 17. should have been giving.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Cenobites in high school. There's your movie. <laughs> no, that's literally just every other horror franchise, sir.
0: Hellraiser high.
2: Oh, oh
3: god. Give it to me now.
2: <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so. Joey is awoken by a phone call from Terry, so the dream ends, and then Terry pops over for this late-night chat, and they, they analyze Joey's dream. They're getting along very, very well, and then this is when Terry pulls out the puzzle box. I
3: also love Terry implying, that she's like, oh, did your dad, like, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> I'm telling <laughs> you, that's the no, setup. He didn't molest
0: me. <laughs> I've really come around on, on Terry. I, as a kid, I found her, like, way too frantic, and she... <laughs> I can't believe I'm talking about as a kid when I watched Hellraiser 3 mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she's a lot more endearing now because you just realize how kind of desperate she is
3: mm-hmm. I like her
0: You know, it, it's not coming through necessarily as like obnoxious it's like she clearly has nobody she can trust and she wants so desperately to like be able to anchor onto somebody
3: I like her more than whoever What's the blonde girl in 2, and I like, and again, I love 2, but the girl in 2 is kind of a cipher, whereas at least, like, Terry feels like an actual character.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, like, way too much surrogate mother shit going on in 2, and that girl is boring, Tiffany. Blah. Yeah, Tiffany. There you go. So uh least Terry of the actress,
0: talk. There's just nothing for Tiffany to do except for open the puzzle and, yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, like this is a character who actually has a motivation and she gets to do things and she has a certain amount of agency. I think the biggest issue that I have with this film is that it builds up Terry and JP to fascinating, interesting dimensions. And, and then it's like, goodbye. Yeah. yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so these two are hanging out. They're getting to know each other. They're getting a little domestic. Let's go back to JP's loft.
3: Unrated footage, uh, an establishing shot again of this loft as construction workers are leaving, and they go, all done, Mr. Monroe, and JP says nothing, and they go, what a dick, and leave.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that definitely sounds like it was excised for good reason. (laughs) I will say, I love that he has installed this ugly as fuck scary pillar, basically 10 feet away from his fuck pad. Yeah, and it's like,
0: it's not even good flow, like it's in the way. (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah like it is a fire hazard slash you would walk into that thing if you were trying to go pee in the middle of the night it's
3: in like what I'm assuming is supposed to be a sitting area like you would put a u-shaped couch up against the wall or like a sectional and then this pillar is just in the middle of the floor blocking your view
2: it's like what are you saying Trace I can't I can't see you just (laughs) let me dodge to the left or the right I gotta see around Pinhead (laughs) but it's a real talking point at parties I bet
0: which mm-hmm. you can't have because <laughs> you can't fit anybody in your goddamn place. Oh, Because
2: there's right. this pillar in the center. Well, and also he's not inviting anyone over who has a penis. Clearly,
3: true. I don't.
2: I mean, that we know of.
3: A boy can dream.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, our Trace is like, challenge accepted.
2: Just open up the hole (laughs) we're good. (laughs) Put the blindfold on and you're good to go. Wait, what are we talking about? Okay. So there's a rat hiding inside this pillar. He gets bitten. (laughs) He sprays slow motion blood over. And this is what wakes up in
0: This is a Hellraiser movie that features a man having an extended battle with a rat on his
2: hand. (laughs) (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I also kind of wish we could have gotten the scene where we see that guy in the beginning pulling this
2: puzzle box out of this pillar, Mm -hmm. because it seems like the pillars hollow. I do not understand. (laughs) I think this is where Brian said the physics of this don't quite make sense. Oh my god, you got your husband to watch this? (laughs) No, the Brian that's on this recording.
3: Oh, sorry. Hi, Trace.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My name's Brian. Have we met? (laughs) (laughs)
2: should we all be wearing name tags oh wait we can't see we can't see each other (laughs) damn this audio only it's
3: okay okay yes brian is correct not your husband brian but this brian is correct the physics
2: don't make sense (laughs) yeah my brian was like what the fuck are you watching absolutely not (laughs) there we go that makes more sense that's the brian that i know yeah Okay, so Pinhead is officially awake, but he's not moving. He's not speaking yet. So let's cut back to the next morning. This is where Terry is actively trying to burn down Joey's apartment. (sighs) I do kind of like it as a lesbian domestic scene, though. Like, we had this nice intimate evening, and now I'm making you breakfast, but I'm royally fucking it up because I don't know how to make toast. Let's also go break and enter together. Absolutely. The women who break and enter... Stick together, right?
3: I feel so bad though for this man that's walking the dog and is just dragging this dog down the street. What is going on here? This is abuse, right? (laughs) Yes, it is. And on film, caught on film.
0: (laughs) I also remember watching that scene as a kid, and for whatever reason, I assumed because they gave him those really dark glasses that they were trying to imply that he was blind. (laughs) Oh no. I thought the joke they were trying to make when he says, I see everything, is that he's like blind and he doesn't see anything. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that would actually be very much in keeping with the discussion we had about, like, the transient homeless people. Like, yeah, let's absolutely. also have a seer in a blind man. Mystical <laughs> homeless. Mm.
3: Alas, yeah. I
0: was
2: just an idiot and eight years old. And
0: <laughs> watching a movie I probably had no business watching.
2: Oh, dear. So they they end up breaking in, which is kind of fun. I like what these women are just like, we're going to do whatever we need to get this scoop. And
3: this is I think when the film picks up though, right? Cuz they find the puzzle box drawings and it's like, "Cool, off to the races."
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Name drop the Chenard Institute.
0: And I might add Joey is wearing an amazing pant and shirt combo when they're going in there. She's got like
2: <laughs> this very
0: like elaborate flowery pattern on her pants and a similar but like alternately colored top. It's just very there's lots of like little flowers all over the place. It's very interesting mm-hmm. outfit.
2: I mean, the women's costuming, like particularly Terry's costuming, I'm not surprised that we're also drawn to her a little bit more because of the way that she is outfitted. She wears some of the most flamboyant and weird stuff in this movie. Mm -hmm. But it's nice that Joey gets a a little flower going on here. Okay, so let's jump ahead to the evening. This is where JP fixes his eyes on Sandy, played by Amy Lee. She has a bon, whose gold lame dress refuses to stay in place. Oh, God, As gold they lame. Do. I'm not going to lie. I think she has a great death sequence, and this actress is fucking terrible at delivering oh, she lines. <laughs> <laughs> she cannot wait for him to say his line before she is saying her line, and you're like, girl. Well, also when she's walking, like when she's looking at the art, I, I didn't write down her
3: lines, but it- it's delivered like, oh, this is good art. Yes, this is interesting art. It's real (laughs) dark. (laughs) There's like a clear
0: like three-moment beats of just like real dark.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bizarre inclusion. The sex scene is pretty fun. Um, Apparently, she did not sign on to be topless, and so that's why his hands cover her nipples the entire time.
0: Which, am I the only one thinking like I'd rather be topless than have some rando just like groping my tits for three minutes straight
2: because they're not placed on the tits they are actively
3: like
0: needing groping. dough
3: no yeah 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 he is like groping hardcore and i mean again not our body not our choice but me personally like if it's like okay is my dick gonna just like lie there or is someone gonna be like massaging my dick on screen um i'm gonna think <laughs> these are the, the options <laughs> i mean that's what the options were with their with their tits i guess
2: not sure I would equate a dick getting stimulated. On I'm
3: not. Or. I'm not equating. I'm saying, for me as a man, that th- that that is my only comparable. I can't compare it to my boobs because they're not actual
2: breasts. Whatever. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I guess no, I would have gone tit for tit, but yeah, it's <laughs> a, it's a weird scene, no matter which way you look at it.
3: Correct.
2: And she gets eaten, and it is awesome.
0: Yeah. Also. Trace, I saw you made a note that it's actually when her skin gets ripped off, yeah. that's actually Paula Marshall in the the skinless? makeup. Apparently
3: so, and that's because, though, the CGI they added with her skin getting ripped off, that's one of, again, supposedly,
2: Clive Barker's additions. Hmm. So it's a timing issue? Like, they could only get Paula Marshall because she was presumably still on set or something?
3: Well, no. This is the work print. This is after they delivered the work print. So this is being shot in February of 92, I mean, sorry, the the death scene itself is not like, but it's just like the extra stuff. And I don't know again which parts of it. But yes, once the skin is removed, some of it or all of it is Paula Marshall.
1: Hmm.
0: I noticed that because I read that when you sent that tidbit. Mm -hmm. I I was watching for it. I'm like, yeah, I can see in the eyes that's Paula Marshall. And it actually makes me appreciate Paula Marshall even more because it's like not only was she game to do like the Cenobite makeup. She was like, yeah, sure, I'll do a skinless skinless sequence that no one's going to know that it's me.
3: I will say, her interview, which is about 15 minutes long, from 2016, she's really, really charming and very nice about everything. Aww. Yeah, it's great.
2: (laughs) It's so rare When you see Hollywood people, are actually nice. I mean, Clive Barker (laughs) isn't on this thing. Uh, he probably demanded an extra (laughs) (laughs) $20,000. But, like, adjusted for inflation. Right, yeah. I mean, depending on when it was filmed, he might have also been sick. Oh, right
0: but also like one of the interviews he gave on a very earlier version of the DVD he was like this is the last time i'm doing this all right this is my final word on this stupid franchise like
2: i'm i am done thank you i've yeah. been fucked into the ground by this yes. franchise yeah. goodbye <laughs> i mean that that's the thing right when he dies
3: his legacy is hellraiser like that is what it is
2: um i think for film people hmm? If you like literature, I definitely think that you're going to give him a lot more credit for having a big oeuvre. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And just in case people are wondering, yes, also Candyman.
3: No, I I know. Is Candyman, is it done as Clive Barker's Candyman? Um, I know it's his property, but like he didn't direct any of them. He directed the first Hellraiser release.
0: I also always forget that because I think the short story, it's based on like... What they turned it into with the racial elements, like none of that was in the short story. So I don't think there's going to be nearly that level of like legacy of connecting Clive Barker to Candyman the way he's going to get connected to Hellraiser.
3: Yeah, and again, yes. There's Lord of Illusions. There's also Nightbreed because Nightbreed is a bigger cult than Lord of
2: Illusions. But oh yeah, it's Hellraiser. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's Hellraiser through and through. So in between the sex scene and the murder by pillar, we do have a little bit extra with the Chenard Institute. This is the first instance where Terry thinks, oh, okay, Joey doesn't need me anymore. So it's a hint that she is susceptible to people abandoning her and she has issues around that. (laughs) And Joey's like, no, you're cool to stay.
3: Yeah, I I wish, honestly, I wish this was the Terry-Joey
2: show and I'm upset that we don't have it. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to both actresses and what mm-hmm. they're delivering because you want to root for them. And also, mm-hmm. JP is such a compelling villain that you're like, cool, I want to see him be Frank in this movie.
3: But no, he's he needs to be Julia in this movie. <laughs> right,
2: yes. Because that's honestly what it feels like they're setting up. And maybe they were just like, no, that's too similar to the first film, we'll get in trouble. But yeah.
0: Or I could see, like, if if they really wanted to do the tragedy of it, like, they could find a way of making Terry the Julia. Mm. Yeah, keep JP as as the Frank, but kind of embracing it and realizing, like, have the tragedy of this be like, everybody's going to abandon me, so I'm going to take care of myself by becoming just the next Julia.
3: Well, and the the dynamic between her and Joey would make more sense because... It's different enough from the first one because, again, Kirsty and Julia didn't like each other. Yeah. So you have then these two women who do like each other, one of them who is trying to, like, mentor, essentially, the other one.
2: And she turns on it. That that would be a great dynamic. Right. And it sounds, weirdly enough, like not something that they ever considered. The plan yeah. was always to make it all about Pinhead and these new pseudo-Cenobites. Yes. Yep, always.
0: And that moment just falls so flat, the reveal... Yeah, we'll get to it, I'm sure, more in depth.
3: Oh, when we get to Terry and JP?
2: I fucking (laughs) hate it. I do think one of the other things that we need to acknowledge is, like, every time I watch this movie, I always think of Wishmaster. Not just because of the way that the big murder sequences happen at the club, but particularly how Pinhead is He's turned into a kind of djinn in this movie where he's constantly tempting J.P. and Terry to be like, don't you want power? Come to the dark side. Embrace your bad impulses.
0: That's because he's stuck performing through like one of those, like if you went to the beach and like put your head into one of those like paintings, <laughs> like he basically needs to spend the first like third of the time he's on screen acting through one of those things. So all he can do really at this point is talk.
3: Well, and also because the writer of this film, who also wrote 2 and 4, did write Wishmaster. Yes. <laughs> there is that? Too? I was trying to get there eventually. <laughs> really, after Wishmaster, Peter Atkins was like, out. he hasn't really done like a lot of anything notable since then.
0: Well, that's because he was turned into a Cenobite with uh, barbed wire around his head. Right. There you go.
2: <laughs> oh, with yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, Baby Cenobite, yeah. Baby head Cenobite. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so basically JP is now on board because Pinhead is like, cool, you fed me, that chick, and now I'm going to give you power. Again, we get some first one-liners too, when he goes, Jesus Christ, not quite.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I also love his, um, if you have a quality, let it define you, whatever it is. Um, okay, that's not how it works, but sure, we'll do that. I also love how
0: blatantly he's turning around that line on him that he said not five minutes before in the movie yeah (laughs) and he just like he just fully buys into it and it's just like it's such a cheap ploy and he just like jp just hook line and sinker
2: man it is but let's not forget that jp is a guy who woos women with roses that he keeps on ice behind the bar he's not the smartest cookie
3: my thing is this can you just hire people to get this pillar out of there like just don't go near the pillar like get a crane drop it in pick it up drop it in the ocean like
2: as long as you stay away from it it seems like you're fine trace you can't have movers in the hellraiser franchise that's how this all started yeah. <laughs> that is a deep cut to number one
0: <laughs> and i think number two i think there's movers in that yeah one. i
2: do think there's movers in that one too yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bed eats them
0: and i think what they're really getting to with this whole thing with Pinhead's head being in this pillar is is toying with this idea that he's he's a manipulator. He's a master manipulator and he's good at toying with people's desires and using mm-hmm. that to his own ends. But it's also not who Pinhead is. Like he's he nah. doesn't really give a shit about manipulating people based off of the first two movies. It's I know what I want. You've opened this box so you think you know what you want we're going to see how this plays out. You may or may not like it. I don't really give a shit. But they're really trying to lean more into like the serpent devil vibe, you know, and really leaning into kind of the more Judeo-Christian concept of hell here. Um, And I think that's kind of where they're really losing the the proper Hellraiser flavor.
2: Mm -hmm. It also hints at where the franchise will go and how it starts to lose a lot of its, uh, Unique appeals because Pinhead just becomes a judge and a jury and an executioner.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it loses that element of desire. And it's just going back to that idea of kind of punitive, but also like, I don't really care if you've sinned or not. I'm just going to hurt you because I'm evil.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a little unfortunate. Speaking of kind of unfortunate, our only glimpse of Ashley Lawrence's Kirsty is on deck. And this happens when Terry gets a tape delivered to her by Dexter's dad. And basically, it's just Kirsty in an institution, because this is where all of our final girls end up if they survive. She's been institutionalized. She's talking crazy pants about how this box works, but I do like the visual symmetry of her talking about how to open it or how to solve it and you also see Joey working through it at the same time. That's kind of fun. It's like a passing of the baton.
0: And one thing I will say too is that I don't think this is where she ultimately ended up, even disregarding that flaming turd hellseeker. Mhm. What I'm picking up is like this is since this is from the Trinard Institute, This I was seeing as like footage from when she first got to the Trenard hospital, like maybe between one and two.
2: Oh,
3: okay. See, that's what I'm hoping, yeah, because I, I, I wasn't sure, but I choose to believe that because I don't like the idea of, like, Kirsty being an institution after two. And yeah. the reason
0: I believe that is because I don't think there would be a Chenard Institute after everything that happened there.
3: Right. A- after hell opened up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so I think, you know, I, I think the tapes she's getting are archives from videos that they took between the events of one and two. That's right. what I'm choosing
2: to believe. I like it.
3: I like that a lot more. I will say, I have lots of questions about the puzzle box in general, though, especially when we get to the
2: climax. And yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah. (laughs) Fair. Fair (laughs) enough. Fair. Okay. So while this is happening... Oh, there's also a quick shot of Elliot Spencer, so that's the human visage of Pinhead, and he just kind of, like, pops in after Kirstie's message to be like, hey, listen to her, she's telling the truth.
3: I do like that we get more of Doug Briley, like, being a human in this movie. I think that's actually one of the movie's better choices. Mm-hmm. it would be
0: interesting to know, like, to what degree he pushed for that.
3: Well, and yeah, you because know, uh, there have been reports that, you know, he hated the, like, the makeup on this was the most uncomfortable for him, but he does say on this Blu ray, he says that Hellraiser 3 is the best professional experience he's had in his life.
2: Hmm. Yeah. It sounded like everybody just really got along on the filming of this. And even though mm-hmm. it sounded hectic and yeah, he didn't like his makeup, I think he was just really happy with the fact that he got to do more.
3: Yeah. And, and also be in America. That was honestly like the reason he was like, yeah, sure, is because he wanted to go to
2: America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's cut back to Joey's apartment. This is where Terry gets her own test. So JP calls and he's like, hey, baby, I want you back. And she's like, no, I'm good. And then immediately there's a out of context message that she overhears on the answering machine. That's like, hey, Joey, you've got a promotion. Yay. And then Terry's (laughs) like, oh, I guess I'm fucked. I'll go back to JP
3: unrated footage before she goes to his place. Terry is alone in a restaurant and she's drinking a cup of coffee or tea. It is un- is not told which one, but basically it's an interesting camera shot where the camera is focusing on the coffee or tea, and you see JP's face reflection, like, come into it, and she looks up and goes, oh, hey, let's go to your place, and then we get to the theatrical cut again.
0: <laughs> Trace, is there a particular reason why it's <laughs> coffee or tea?
3: Well, because it's in a teacup, but it was black like coffee, like not brownish black like tea. So I was really because it was the poor video quality. So I just couldn't tell.
0: (laughs) Were you worried if you didn't, like, make that distinction? Like, it could be either Someone, you were going to get an email, like, it was tea, motherfucker. Someone's
2: going to come up to me, um, excuse me, she was drinking tea, sir. <laughs> well, we, we do know what happens on Twitter sometimes, so it is entirely possible. I don't know what it you It is. Talk- I'll to cover my bases, just in case. <laughs> I have
3: to avoid all forms of contact uh, confrontation. Filled with
0: <laughs> rational, nuanced, well-reasoned conversation. I don't know what
2: you're talking yep, about. Yep, that'll be it. always. Okay, we get another dream from Joey. This time we are officially in World War I because we're in the trenches. She wakes up and this time Elliot's on her TV and he's like, hey, you need to come and help me. But it's kind of already too late because JP has been setting things in motion. So Terry is now at the club.
3: Wait, what, what about the line though when he's like, oh yeah, this pillar, I had a friend help me. She put her heart and soul into this. <laughs>
0: and then they do the close up with like the little stinger <laughs> sound.
3: See, that is comedy, and that is what Hickox told Barker he wasn't going to do. <laughs> it
2: just slipped through the cracks in one of the six different iterations <laughs> the script went through. Exactly.
0: Speaking of comedy that may or may not have been intentional, just going back really quickly to when she's having that nightmare uh, about being in the, the trenches in World War One. I have to imagine there was someone whose job it was to throw prosthetic body parts at her during that scene. Because oh, there's literally just, like, <laughs> piles of body parts just flying in the background and, like, hitting her in the back of the head.
3: Joe, I know you did not, but Brian, did you watch the Adam Sandler movie, Hubie Halloween, that hit Netflix last year? I have not, no, I'm sorry. Okay, there's a running gag where he's always on his bike going down the street, and people just throw bags of dog shit at him. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, it happens, like, ten times in the movie. It's just this recurring gag, So I'm just imagining... Joey walking through the trenches as people are just throwing like (laughs) severed arms. Throw it again. Throw it again. Harder. But then one hits her in the face and she gets knocked over. God.
2: (laughs) Honestly, this sounds like what we would get if this was set at high school and it's like, Joey's the loser who works in the AV club. Throw dog shit at Joey. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So we are at JP's place. He is trying to lure Terry to this pillar and she is not having it. But we do get the callback to Frank Cotton's classic pickup line, oh, come daddy. to daddy.
3: More comedy too. When he's dragging her to the thing, he goes, watch your head on the I steps.
2: Know.
1: <laughs> he's you know, he's, such a he's compassionate.
3: Head. He cares about her. Again, I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't work, because I think it does work, because that's why I find it so entertaining. Like, this is intentional comedy. It just, like, it is not what Barker wanted, and that's what makes me laugh so much. Like, what is it doing
2: in this Hellraiser movie?
0: Especially with that come to daddy line, because it's, like, it's so utterly unsubtle. Because, like, yes. they do the full zoom into his face, and he's just like, come to daddy.
2: Like, yeah, we said it! Yeah, check it off. Oh my god, I just came. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, I totally thought that Terry was just going to die here. So I do love the fact that she fucking brass knuckles JP. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a good little subversion, right? Because, yeah, you fully do expect that she's, oh, she's just the other victim because we already have a final girl, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. It does work here. The, again, the problem is, like, you know, we get Pinhead making a deal with her. But then she's out of the movie until Mm -hmm. she comes back for half a scene.
2: Yeah, it is nonsense. I don't know what they were thinking with this. Like, let's spend all this time with these characters. Build them up. Uh, Who are you talking about? We've forgotten. They haven't been on screen for, like, what, 40 minutes?
3: (laughs) I remember all of the stories about Bradley saying about how bad the pillar was. Because he couldn't do do anything except act with his face. And his face was frozen. He couldn't do shit he's only acting in this pillar for 20 minutes of screen time and again that's like from beginning to end like it's really less because
2: not all 20 minutes of those are his Oh, you didn't watch the the twenty minute cut where it's just Doug Bradley being like, "Oh God, I'm stuck in this pillar. Uh, I'm trying I to mean, get
3: like Every time we see the pillar in the first thirty minutes, it's not him, right? It's yeah. it's just the the mold of his face.
2: Yeah, and um. it's like, no, Doug, we don't actually want you to move. You're supposed to be frozen in this scene. No, Doug, stop <laughs> talking.
0: Yeah, they made him actually get into the pillar for those scenes.
2: <laughs> Stay <laughs> You're still. Joking, right? Stay very <laughs> still. <laughs> very method. He loved it. Okay, so Joey then wakes up to some kind of dance party happening in her apartment. And she pulls back the blinds and she sees Limbo. So she goes through the glass. She sees the room where Elliot Spencer is bowed over the box from like the 1920s. She has a little ghost chat with him uh, about hell and her dad and who he became in his pursuit of pleasure. We get this pinhead origin story that nobody asked for. I know,
3: but you know what? i like it i like the idea of you know a man who'd been through war who had lost all faith in humanity all faith in god and was looking for something i know we don't need it but i do like it and i think if we didn't have the extra scenes of him in human form it wouldn't if it was just like they found a book or they were doing a microfish research and they found this information (laughs) that wouldn't work but at least because we have him here saying this story it's great. There's also a little bit of extra footage here in the unrated cut too, where they're going, they're walking through like an Indian street or something, before we come back to the theatrical cut to finish his origin story.
2: And by Indian street, you mean like a street in India, right? Yes. Okay.
3: Yes, which
0: I'm sure was done very sensitively and used no stereotypes. Well, it was supposed
2: to represent where he bought the box from someone there. So, I mean, <laughs> well, this this franchise also has a bad history of that, where it's like, ooh, where's the scary threatening box yeah. from mm-hmm. somewhere in Asia? Need to go somewhere, somewhere in exotic. Yeah. But question
3: for y'all, though. So because I, I know Hellraiser Judgment, the last one to come out, kind of went more into the rules of hell and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I found that very interesting in that film. Do y'all want to know more about hell and the commandments and the laws of hell? Or are y'all like, no, 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 keep this on earth. Give me like a human character to latch on to and we'll go from there.
0: So I'll say this. That kind of brings us to the discussion about like the iterations that are like the new iterations that are coming up. There's like the Mm -hmm. remake movie and then there's a television series. What I would like is I would like the movie To kind of go back to its roots in terms of the erotic desires, the Mm -hmm. uh, exploration, make that more of, like, go back to the human roots of that and have the Cenobites be something in the background. The television series, I would love if they explored, like, Leviathan and, like, its inner workings and, like, what are the politics of the Cenobites in Hell,
3: uh, one thing is whenever I would watch Judgment for the first time again, everyone this is the last one to come out, the one with this third actor playing Pinhead. But people were like, "Oh, it's it's Hellraiser paperwork," and I was like, "I actually thought it was
2: really interesting. I would watch more
3: of this paperwork."
2: <laughs> yeah, it's done in a very like gross out, vulgar kind of way, but the underlying stuff about how pinhead is just kind of a messenger who has a boss that he reports to and there's like a hierarchy it is interesting and we do kind of get a sense of it here right where the reason that we get these flashbacks in this origin story is because it tells us why he's able to command a troop of cenobites right like Mm -hmm. he is a general who is in charge of an army and I do think it'd be fascinating to explore that, that the suits are not going to think that that's sexy enough. You've got to have centibites skinning people alive all the time.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's fair.
2: I don't like it. But um, we got a clubbed massacre. We sure do. Yeah, so we, we briefly learn, okay, you got to use this box, learn them into limbo, and then we're good. But shit is going down at the boiler room (laughs) (laughs) so this is barker's sequence that he did a lot of insert shots on as you mentioned trace pinhead basically just kills everybody using his chains but also other unusual weapons like ice from drinks and of course infamously cds
0: so can you imagine this scene honestly still terrifies the living hell out of me because I imagine being the very last person to die in that Oof, club oh. and having to watch every other person around me just get mutilated and just ripped to shreds and just knowing, like, I guess I'm next. Like, mm-hmm. that is so terrifying to me. And it's such an effective use of, like, if we're going to bring the Cenobites out of kind of the shadows and out of these smaller stories watching that at play in this enclosed space I think was the way to do it like it, it gets a little silly for me when they're on the street it's still entertaining but in yeah. terms of like being scary this is terrifying to
3: me. I agree with you and I think it's a really well done scene too yeah. oh yeah it's really effective for me I'm always like ah, I don't know if it would work and it's a total crapshoot but I'm like um I'm laying on the ground pretending to be dead <laughs> <laughs>
0: Like, like the chains won't see you if you're.
3: <laughs> well, I'm like maybe he won't sense that I'm alive. I mean, he's a hell demon, so maybe he will. But I at least have a shot. Like these people that are just banging at the door, like fucking the kids in the gym at Carrie. Like, no, you, you, that's not gonna help you. Yeah, you're coming. But that just
0: rings of like pure panic, which is exactly what I would be doing.
3: I did need a, a high-heel shoe in someone's face. That's what I needed from this scene. But otherwise, mwah, perfect.
2: I will say the CGI of the Ice Cube transforming into Doug Bradley's face and then skewering that woman. Not good, right? Don't tell me you thought that was good. I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's primitive <laughs> it was CGI. Silly. Trace, this is literally the first no. time CGI is being used in a horror film. Come on, man. <laughs> I totally agree, and I get
3: interesting. Yes, good. No, I, I actually think that the CGI with um, what's her face is skinning earlier in the film that actually looks oh, really I think that good, looks because, good yeah. it, because it's so fast. Mm-hmm. But it's not calling attention to itself. Whereas no. this ice cube thing, also the prop itself doesn't look good. Like once it cuts to it actually impaling her face, it just looks like a big hunk of plastic. Mm-hmm.
0: For me, the most effective part of the whole scene is actually the very end where the door the closes and you see oh, the door come from it. under while just hearing the chains like kind of sweep up the last of the mess.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the sound just gets quieter mm-hmm. as the bodies. It's also a lengthy hold. Like we
3: hold on the blood and the sounds for, I want to say, like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. I like it. I
2: yeah, like it I a love lot. It. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the scene the best that people part. remember from this film. And It's good. Yeah, this and, you know, CD, the DJ Cinebite. Well, let's go into this. Yeah, let's go into this whole last like
3: (laughs) 30 minutes of the movie.
2: Yeah, so basically, Joey ends up getting lured to the boiler club, and she ends up calling Dexter's dad. She arrives. There are hundreds of bodies here. Like, yeah. just so, so many. <laughs> this is also the last bit of unrated
3: footage that I could tell. Again, it's possible I missed some, but yeah, there's more shots of more bodies as she walks around the club. Like, it's a longer scene of her walking around seeing bodies.
2: I mean, I don't think you need that because it's already overwhelming. Like, she goes into a whole new room that's been set up like a sexy candle thing, mm-hmm. and there's just so many more bodies waiting for her there. Okay. You two tell me if you recognize this. Did you know that JP is the body on the motorcycle? No, I had no idea. Because that's why he gets the pistons
3: okay well because he got the pistons in his head earlier when when he was confronting the pillar so i just didn't i didn't know what that was so that that makes more sense
2: it's apparently because he's into motorcycles to which i'm like well film you didn't do a great job of that because when he shows up with pistons later i'm just like well this is an odd choice
0: i just thought it was because like he was just like a walking erection (laughs) (laughs) they were basically just like this is what he does he thrusts like this is his thing
2: I mean, that also works, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so she she and Pinhead exchange words. He's amused by her. He goes to kill her, but of course she's got the box, so he can't. So she makes a run for it. Now we get the street action. So we have electrified water, exploding stores, flying manhole covers, and a chain that attacks her boobs.
0: And like three New Yorkers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is the middle of the night, I guess. I love
3: the electrified water. I'm a sucker for that. And also the the, the shots of, like, the camera, like, on her heels as she's running away from this. Mm-hmm. I'm a real sucker for that. But yeah, the, the boob chain and those three New Yorkers. Oh, the sewer lid frisbee?
2: Yeah. <laughs> it feels like they're trying to go really big and give you, like, oh my god, the world is ending. Like, we are losing all control to these otherworldly powers. But it just kind of feels like a bit of a video game, like make it down the street without getting decapitated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do need to confess something, though. Yes. Because it's such a stupid reveal and it kind of is like the pivot to like the downfall of the Cenobites in terms of like where they go.
2: And any scariness, yeah.
0: The scene where she's in front of the TV store and she Mm -hmm. sees herself pop up on the screens.
2: Yes, it's
0: creepy as hell.
2: I do like it. And it echoes back to the way that she's introduced by Doc in True. the opening, right?
3: It, it actually subverted my expectations though, because I thought what was going to happen was Pinhead was going to appear on the TV and, like, taunt yes. her a little bit. Ah, yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. So I like that we get kind of this Peeping Tom gimmick where it's like, oh, no, it, it's your cameraman look like, walking towards you. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite as effective as it is intended to be. And, like, given how I'm saying it, like, it sounds super creepy. It's not great, but I really like what they're trying to do with this scene. Like, the
0: setup is better than the punchline. The execution. Yes. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. And I Um, I think that's how I feel about pretty much the rest of the film. I'm like, (laughs) I get what you're trying to do. It's not quite working for me, and it's a little too histrionic, but props for giving it a try.
0: Yeah. And I do feel like this is the last time, like, some of these cenobites are dated the minute they get on screen, like if oh, yeah. CD head. Like, okay, that's early '90s now. Mm-hmm. But it is also—it seems like the last time they really put effort into the design uh, for a a large yeah. batch of cenobites. I think they do to a certain extent in Bloodline, but only for two of them. You get like the the twins, yeah, uh, and I like you get the, the Angelique cenobite, which I think is eh. Yeah, but at least here they're still trying. It's still kind of very bloody, and there's a lot of like intricate detail to the costumes that just gets left by the wayside in later entries.
3: Mm-hmm. And we're also getting Doc being really uh, persnickety.
2: He's <laughs> like, "Ready for your close-up, Joey," and then also, "That's a wrap." No, I hated it. To me, this was a hundred percent Freddy. Yeah, the I was like, "No, no one having run-runners. none of this."
3: Which, why give it to Doc?
0: Yeah. <laughs> like he, he wasn't seen as being like at all witty or anything like that no before he was a Cenobite. so yeah i'm not really sure
2: i wish that they had of leaned into how creepy it would be for your father figure to be transformed into this monster who now wants to hurt you because Instead, yeah, he's just glibly throwing out these one-liners, and it feels like he could be the same as any other Cenobite. Like, what distinguishes him now from someone like Barbie, the flame-throwing babyface Cenobite? Yeah.
0: It was actually more effective, his first lines, where he's like, have you seen what he did to me, you little bitch? Have you seen? Because they're playing with that, this is her father figure, and now he's like...
2: They have a relationship.
0: Yeah. So playing with that by, you know, turning... Something familiar and comforting to her into something that is now trying to kill her and blaming her for it is a Mm -hmm. lot better than just, okay, now he's just going to start spewing off some of these one-liners.
2: Yeah. And it becomes a problem, too, because it sets up what will also be a disappointing reveal when Cenobite Terry shows up. (laughs) Yes,
3: I get it. Like, I, I like the idea of, like, oh, the, each Cenobite, like, the design is built on their vice. I don't even want to say vice. I guess one aspect of their character. Because, yeah, with yeah. Doc, we have the camera with the... DJ, it's we often the their CDs. professions if we're being
2: honest it's like you are your job when you become a cenobite
3: yeah but then with terry it's oh you're a smoker so your like neck is open and you have a cigarette sticking out of it but she's also a dreamer
2: which is why she keeps talking about dreams right, right, right.
0: which is also what they named her on the hellraiser wiki like they actually name the cenobite dreamer
2: yeah oh okay because she has that line earlier where she talks about how she doesn't dream and she feels right. like she's missing out. And then Pinhead actually tries to lure her in by being like, you're on the dream world now.
3: No, and and that makes her line, again, while we don't get enough of her and we're not there yet. But when she goes, I have so many dreams now or whatever she says to taunt yeah. Joey, like that's actually a really creepy and very effective line.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just want more of it.
3: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. falling so flat because they don't do anything with it.
2: Okay, so we're almost there. We just have to get through the church part first. Okay. <laughs> so this
3: was the most controversial scene in the film. Apparently, I guess, during filming, not when it came out, but, like, during filming. Hickox had been refused permission to shoot inside a real church, so he used a matte painting as a background for the altar. Uh, when the crew complained of sacrilege, he told them it was no different than the countless Hammer horror films in which Christopher Lee as Dracula rampaged in churches. Ah!
2: I mean, he does melt a cross. <laughs>
3: he also mimics the
0: crucifixion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never went to church as a kid. I was not raised religious. But even I remember seeing this and going like, that seems a little blasphemous to me.
2: <laughs> hmm That moment where he stretches out his arms and oh, like wow. tilts his head, mm-hmm. it's so iconic. It's iconic, but he's doing Jesus.
3: Like he's doing yeah. Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. an amazing image. Again, even if you don't think this movie has a visual eye, which as we've already established, most of, like, we do think that. That shot mm-hmm. is gorgeous and haunting and terrifying. It's so good. Yeah,
2: and like the altar cracks, like the stone table and all that shit. And then like he literally gives this pre-sacrament from his body. <laughs>
0: this is the one kind of zingery line reading that I think actually works. When he gives the, you know, this is my blood. This is my flesh. Lucky are Mm -hmm. those who come to my supper. And then just shoves a chunk of flesh into his
2: mouth. I Mm
3: -hmm. love that. I love that you'll burn in hell for this. (laughs) Burn of such
2: limited imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Because whenever you can get Pinhead talking about torture, that's where your Hellraiser movie sits. Yeah. No, and again, like as
3: goofy as a lot of this, granted, I don't think that this scene is goofy. I do think that this scene is as effective as it needs to be.
2: But as goofy as this third act is, like, it still works for me. Mm -hmm. I think the other weird thing is that this feels like the pinnacle. Like, we should be setting our climax here in this church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and dealing with this now. And instead, we run to an abandoned construction zone. So boring. We briefly get JP and Terry who just go around her a bunch of times. (laughs) And then she solves the puzzle box and sends all the Cenobites away.
3: Yeah. What?
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's several, like, climactic false starts. It could have been in the street where they're all kind of converging and all hell is breaking loose. It could have been in the church nah let's just have it be in this abandoned lot
2: and i get it like we've we've got to come back and pay off all of this dream imagery and do one last temptation and see whether or not joey is up to snuff i don't know this isn't a long movie but this is the part where i'm just like all right
3: well because because it feels like it's over and then it goes again and yeah yeah
0: (laughs) it's trying to present itself as if it is over but like you know it's not yeah. Right. Like, you know, this is all going to come to a reveal that, like, you know, he's screwing with her. And so you're just mm-hmm. kind of like counting the seconds down until the reveal happens.
3: Yeah. I, I, again, I just don't understand how you quote unquote solve the puzzle box. <laughs> I really don't understand it.
2: Yeah, it always seems to have different meanings, right? Like, sometimes you just have to rub it, and blue energy will come out and zap the Cenobites. And then sometimes you have to do it a different way, and then a knife thing comes out of it. <laughs> yeah, and the, granted, the knife
3: thing works, I think, here and in the second one. Yes. But, okay, so we've already kind of talked about the dad tricking her, like, dumb better at Elm Street 3. I do like her getting strung up as the two Pinheads are like, I'm sorry, as Elliot and Pinhead
2: are talking. Mm-hmm
0: her getting strung up was the the Clive Barker element, right? That was kind of some yes. of the the stuff that yes. he added in.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why we got some S&M bondage in
3: here, baby. Well, because again, like what what would she have been doing if she wasn't there? She was just going to be standing there like watching them
0: <laughs> when the kind of the, the phallic thing comes out of the ground, which I'm guessing is supposed to be an allusion back to Chenard's like penis hat.
3: It, certainly it is, seems and, like and, it. and that's also Barker's edition. I
0: <laughs> the one thing I noticed this thing always used to creep me out because that mesh of like the organic and the machinery is really mm-hmm. creepy to me. But this time I couldn't help but notice that it had like leather paraphernalia on. Like it had a little leather collar and had like chains coming out of it. I'm like, oh, it's a
2: little Aww, leather so daddy. Cute. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like baby fetish wear.
3: Yes,
0: <laughs> like my first, my first leather.
2: <laughs> i mean we all have to do it at some point <laughs> yeah, everybody's got to break into kink at some point and what better way to start than with fleshy penis appendage thing <laughs> when i
3: finally buy my first harness i'm gonna get a hellraiser themed harness <gasps> well your birthday is coming up trays yeah both of our birthdays are coming
0: up <laughs> well i mean while we're at it mine's not too far away either so
3: wait when is your birthday brian february 23rd <gasps> oh February my god. You're between us. <laughs> I'm 27th and Joe's the 9th. Awesome. Mm-hmm. February babies.
2: <laughs> so my issue with this part, feel free to call me a purist, but there's a part here where Pinhead advances on her actually several times with this knife.
0: Yeah, that's not his style.
2: Yeah, that is not his style. He does not dispatch people personally and never by hand.
3: Well, the thing is, so again, the movie's trying to build suspense because she's finally out. She's got the puzzle box and... The suspense factor is he is walking towards her, and she needs to solve the puzzle box again. Solve in quotes mm-hmm. before he reaches her, and I'm yes. like, we just saw this fucker massacre a club with <laughs> hooks coming out of
2: everywhere. Mm-hmm. He is moving at a glacial pace, and apparently, no longer has chains. I guess part of it could be that oh, they're in limbo; he doesn't have his power. It's also because him and Elliot merged, so it's like Elliot's humanity holding him back. Yeah. I mean, I do like that duality, and I think it's interesting that we actually get that other example of early CGI when they merge. We get to see it paid off in four when the twins do the exact same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I will say, yeah. he's also like he first advancing on her with the that weird curly backwards knife before they merge because it it's while he's got it raised that. Like, Mm -hmm. things shift and you realize you're back in limbo. Yes. And I guess, like, one of the things, like, if you wanted to, it's a bit of a stretch, but um, on the the Hellraiser wiki, which, Joe, I am (laughs) so glad you introduced me to because it it is a treasure trove of insanity.
2: Yes. Folks, if you have never tracked down horror movie wikis, they're fantastic for Friday the 13th and apparently (laughs) also great for Hellraiser.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because Kill by Kill. Yes. They've repeatedly gone back to the the friday the 13th wiki treasure trove but it's it's very nice to know that hellraiser also has its own devoted we'll say fans and there are theories woven into a lot of this as fact and so one of the things that they bring up in the synopsis for hellraiser 3 is that the reason that pinhead is now trying to take over the world is because he doesn't have that human side of eliot spencer kind of keeping him in his lane so now yes. he's he's not like this you know esoteric snm you know priest he's just evil and he's trying to take over the world so you could see that as like well he's willing to like you know stab people with his uh with whatever he's got on him now until he uh. goes back to like full pinhead with Elliot spencer mode right but again that's based off of the theories of people who
2: Um, are making shit up as they go (laughs) (laughs) along.
3: the timing of the release i mean because this is 1992 like this is before scream horror is all but dead at this point in terms of like you know franchises it's interesting that they kind of take this pseudo slasher route for this climax when the slasher genre is
2: yeah like on its last last gasp yeah yeah I don't know. I think they thought they were giving the fans what they wanted because it's so much more pinhead and a pinhead backstory and, like, mm-hmm. a hot final girl who's American.
0: <thì> the ironic <coughs> <Spersonality> thing is, like, if you're trying to give people what they want and give them so much more pinhead, he doesn't show up until halfway through the movie and he's in a yep. pillar for the first 20 minutes.
2: Well, oh,
3: wait, 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 no, no. He's not in the first 30 minutes. He's in a pillar from 30 to 50 minutes. That's and what and I mean, yeah. He- <laughs>
0: from when he starts on screen, he's in a pillar. So like, you don't get full pinhead until, yeah, like 50 minutes into the movie.
3: 50 minutes, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
2: It is madness, yeah.
3: I mean, again, it doesn't bother me. Like, I'm fine with the pacing of this movie for the most part, minus a bit of maybe dragginess in that first act. But... Overall, I think the movie's pace pretty well.
2: See, I disagree. And I think it's maybe just because I'm too attached to the characters. But, like, when J.P. and Terry disappear, for me, I'm like, cool, we've got a lot of bombastic action sequences. But I'm very much less involved. And by the time we're getting to all of the Cenobite shit in the construction zone, I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good.
3: I don't disagree with you. And, again, it's a weaker film because of that. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm still never bored in this movie. I mean, I yeah. I, I get to where you're like, oh, I maybe pulled out a little bit because yes, like the church scene is like the movie at its peak, and then it's kind of like
2: after that. Mm-hmm.
3: But it's still fine. Yeah. It's fine for me.
2: It's still enjoyable. So we mm-hmm. we have basically come to the end. We have Dispatch Pinhead. Elliot is you know presumably in hell with him. So go to hell is her closer. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, she is deposited back in the real world at the construction site, and dawn is breaking. It's going to be a beautiful day. She's like, hey, there's some wet concrete. I'm just going to press this box into it. Okay,
3: it's dawn, right? So no one's been on this site to work. All night. (gasps) All night. Why is there a pool of wet cement?
2: Yeah, it just stays fresh.
0: (laughs) 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 It wasn't quick dry cement, so there you go.
2: like acme wet concrete you know lasts for long hours (laughs) (laughs) in case you get stuck in case you fall in yeah so she she presses this box in and we get a nice little dissolve to people entering this office tower where the lobby is decorated with giant pieces of artwork from the (gasps) lament configuration (laughs) and if you don't know what that means then you are now caught up to bloodline and you can go back and listen to last year's episode
3: yeah, for fake Repace. Um, I will say, <laughs> it does actually work, if we're gonna consider this a trilogy, like the Scarlet Box wants to consider it, it does work as a series ender, but because Bloodline gives you that definitive ending, and it's like the saga, it's a prequel, and a sequel, mm-hmm. and a sidequel. <laughs> <laughs> a spacequel. <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah, it's just
2: like... I really wish that they just included that fucking movie. I know. And give us the fucking extended whatever cut. Yeah, give I don't care about shitty work
3: print footage. Like, I'll watch the stupid with the numbers on top and bottom of the screen. The dailies.
2: Yes.
0: If they're literally going to reshoot a whole other movie to give us the Snyder cut uh, of oh Justice God. League, then why can't you take footage you actually already have mm-hmm.
3: and give us the Jaeger cut? I mean, Adam Scott's right there. He's still working. He'll probably come back and do it. Exactly. He loves you this franchise. Adam Scott, can you please come back and finish
2: Hellraiser 4 for us? <laughs> you have to play the Numi Rapace parts too, though. Yes. So, gents, I have a very quick game I would like okay. to play with you. So the pseudo-Cenobites are all defined by some kind of vice or work-related thing mm. that defines who they become as hell demons, and I would love to know, what kind of Cenobite would you become?
3: Oh, God. I feel like if it's the piece of equipment that is always on me, it's probably a cell phone, but that would be for everybody. Hmm. We could go fun and make it a podcasting mic. <laughs> I'm just imagining your head being replaced by a podcast mic <laughs> with a pop filter in front of one of my eyes as like as an eye patch.
2: Ooh, I like it.
3: Or, or I did recently come into a uh, possession of a flashlight, and so maybe it could be fun to have a flashlight Cenobite.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's redundant.
3: <laughs> that's true. Point taken. <laughs> and Mr. Brian.
0: See, you know, this sucks because I'd love to be able to come up with something that's, like... Clever. Dark and clever and sexy, but, like, if we're talking about the things that bring me the most joy, I'd be, like, the fucking cheese Cenobite or something like that. It would just be very... I don't even know what that would look like, but, like...
3: Are, are we talking, like, a block of cheddar cheese, or are we talking, like, a cheese and charcuterie board cheese?
0: Um, charcuterie, because I guess that's at least on the way to being somewhat sexy, <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm not like cheese whiz, like that would be ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, you know, a very elaborate charcuterie board. And maybe like some kind of like, you know, the cheese wire from like the slicer. That's what's doing a lot of the damage or like it's sliced into me or whatever. But uh, yeah, it would be wholly unsexy, whatever it is. (laughs) Just
2: throwing (laughs) little pieces of apricot at people. (laughs) Yeah, I, I tried to think this up. This game was actually quite a bit harder than I thought it was going to be. I was like, oh, I could do something with young adult literature. That sucks. I could do something with adult education. That sucks. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go with something podcasty. <laughs> Wait, you have a kink though. Like, wh- is it a foot kink? What? Ew. No. no. No shame to the foot kink people. That is not my deal.
3: Nothing. Oh, okay, I was like, nothing about. <laughs> But don't you have something? You have something. Oh, God, fine. It's going to be
2: a sailor cenobite. There oh, you go. Yeah. Um, yes.
3: That would <laughs> be doable.
0: Like anchors and like...
2: Ooh, I'll throw an anchor. Okay. Oh, no. I like, like this a lot more. Like ship work. Ship stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. I ended up with the best one. So thank you for workshopping that with me. <laughs> <laughs> But you have to have the hat, too.
3: The hat. Oh, obviously. The hat is what makes it sexy. The wheel will be, like, on your neck, but, like, as a necklace so you can, like, spin it around and kill people with it. Ooh, fun.
0: There'll be a nod to Popeye where, like, you'll have these giant, deformed forearms. Big <gasps> arms.
2: Yes. Yes. Oh, love it. <laughs> now I've got a Halloween costume. <laughs> Take that, sexy
3: gaze. All right. That will close out Hellraiser 3 for us, I think. Final thoughts on the film, y'all? Mr. Mr. Brian? I love it for all
0: of its stupidity. It's in the same vein as It Chapter 2, where it is a horrible adaptation or continuation of the source material, but it is still a very entertaining movie that I like quite a bit. Hmm.
3: Okay, stay tuned in two weeks for us, because we have another movie that will uh, fall in those parameters as well.
2: (laughs) Wow, Trace.
3: I know. I'm I'm getting there early, but yes. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) for next week, too. (laughs) wow trace (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i think i think this movie is really fun i actually liked it more on this rewatch this is the second time i've seen it i saw it for the first time in a marathon of this franchise and coming off of two i was like oh it's all right and then like you know in hindsight after watching four through whatever the fuck ten i was like oh three is way better than all those watching it by itself on its own terms and after doing all that research I enjoyed this quite a bit. It's not like a huge... It's not like a four-star film, but I think it's like a three and a half for me.
2: Yeah, and for me, this is reflective of a certain kind of sequel that Hollywood was comfortable churning out. I do think it's dumb fun, but I think Mm -hmm. it's agreeable in that sense. Like, it's kind of trying to be something, and it's mostly getting there, and I respect its ambitiousness. Do I wish it had a bit more polish? Do I wish that they were giving the characters their due? Sure, but at the end of the day... Yeah, absolutely. Give me this over any of those later entries because at least this one's enjoyable to watch.
3: Uh, great. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, Brian, where can people find you on social media and what's going on? Pretty much at this point, uh, I only
0: do Twitter, uh, just because that takes up way too much of my time anyway. So I can't <laughs> imagine juggling multiple social media handles. Uh, but you can find me at Evil Taylor Hicks, and yeah, just uh, if you want to see any of the stuff I'm writing, like they said. Daily Dead, uh, where I do Let's Scare Brian to Death, and I think in the near future I'll be bringing back my other column soon, uh, Catalog from the Beyond, where I talk about kind of like the B-side cuts of famous horror icons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can uh, uh, see me at uh, roomorg where I cover short horror, CinePunks, where I'm doing a little bit of uh, just odds and ends stuff, and uh, yeah, just uh, uh, any episodes of Corp Club that you want to listen to. Uh, from time to time, I pop up on there pretty regularly, too.
2: Nice, Love it.
3: Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Uh, You can also join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. We also have a letterbox now for the the podcast, so please go find us there. Uh, We keep basically everything we cover up to date on our diary, and we have lists of everything. It's great. (laughs) If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love that, and it helps in search results. Uh, if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, we're in the middle of January, so we'll have, um, we've already posted our results of the 2020 Hereditaries, our horror version of the Oscars, and our audio commentary on Final Destination 3 to go with our month of threes. Upcoming, we will have an episode on CBS All Accesses The Stand, Apple TV's Servant, and the controversial new film, Promising Young Woman. So go to patreon.com horrorqueers for that.
2: Yep, that one's a big one.
3: It's a big one.
2: Joe, Mm -hmm. we
3: are continuing our month of threes. What are we talking about next week?
2: Oh gosh, I feel like I've been waiting two years for this trace. So ever since (laughs) you and Michael Varadi talked up a big game on our Psycho 2 episode way back in the day, I've been wondering what the deal is with Psycho 3.
3: Here's the thing, it is not better than Psycho 2. (laughs) It is very much in the vein of Hellraiser 3 where it's like, it's dumb fun. Right. It's campy. That's way campier than two as well.
0: I can vouch for that.
3: <laughs> so walk into it with that mindset. It's easily the weakest of the first three, but it's still kind of this bizarre, like, I can't believe this got made. Also, Perkins directed it.
2: Yes, I'm excited. I'm going to drink all the alcoholic beverages and revel in the camp.
3: Love it. Well, again, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a treat. Thanks for having me. And on that note, we can cross out Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth.
2: Yes, and cross out horror queers.
0: You've made it to the end of another Bloody Disgusting Podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other Bloody Disgusting Podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street,
1: and more.